Welcome to Podcast for Leaderful Schools, coming to you almost live from Oakland University in Rochester, Michigan, actually coming from Pauley Hall of the Galileo Institute, uh, which is the uh, Teacher Institute Center at Oakland University. Today, uh, we'll continue our series of conversations with education leaders about issues that uh, are facing public schools today as we've come out of the pandemic uh, and are coming into a new, a whole new set of circumstances. Our guest is uh, Dr. Chris Delgado, who is completing his first year as superintendent in the Farmington Public Schools. And prior to that, he, he spent uh, more than a decade as deputy superintendent in the Walled Lake Schools. Uh, Suzanne and I have known uh, Chris uh, for a long time uh, as a building and central office administrator, and we're delighted he's working in Farmington now. Uh, so, Chris, uh, oh, and my co-host today, of course, is the ever-wonderful Dr. Sue Klein. And so, in fact, we're going to begin with a series of questions that Sue's going to pose. So, Chris, welcome. We're just thrilled you could be, be with us today. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. And again, I'll, I'll add to the welcome. Uh, we're thrilled to have a chance to talk with you and give you a chance to reflect on your first year in Farmington. And I would also invite you to go back further than that, if that helps, because we become who we are today by what we did yesterday and the day before and the day before that. So you. as you think about where you're, you are now, uh, why did you decide to pursue the position of superintendent in Farmington? What was it that um, was going through your head saying, this is a match for me? I've been asked that question that in, in the middle of a pandemic, uh, who would raise their hand to, uh, to take on a superintendency? Uh, exactly. and, and for me, Farmington has always had a, a very special uh, place in my heart. I'm a resident here in the school district, but I have always looked to Farmington as very reminiscent of where I grew up. I grew up just down the street in Southfield and went to Southfield Public Schools. And in the 70s in Southfield, it was just a wonderfully diverse um, childhood, a wonderfully diverse area to grow up with. To this day, I have um, friends from all different races and religions from all different corners of the world. Uh, we were kind of a microcosm of the entire world in uh, just the city of Southfield. And so when I've looked at Farmington, and one of the reasons that my wife and I chose to move to the Farmington area was because of that similarity. We wanted our children to grow up in such a wonderfully rich, uh, diverse area. And so I've always kept my eye on Farmington. And uh, when, when the opportunity arose, uh, I threw my hat in the ring and was fortunate enough to, uh, to be given the position. Well, it's always interesting when you talk to people that have taken a position or even reflecting on why they took a position. It's a two-way fit. And you've talked about just now why Farmington was attractive to you. What do you think were some of the reasons the Board of Education might have selected you for this very important role? Well, I think there are a couple things, uh, and, and this came through not only in my, in my interview, but in my individual conversations with board members as we kind of walked the halls on, on one of the day-long interviews is my desire to have a commitment to this particular school district for a very long time. That I, I, I'm, I'm interested in not only kind of loyalty to a district, but investing in the people in the district and then in the broader community. And so when I was able to articulate that, I wanted to finish, essentially, I wanna finish my career in Farmington schools and commit fully to the community to make a difference in the lives of children in this community and support families, I think that was very attractive for them. 
they had uh, previously went through a couple different superintendents and, and were looking for someone who was committed to them and was going to bring that stability. So I think that part was very, very attractive. I think also not only my personal but professional uh, background and the diverse um, experiences that I've had uh, both working and I worked in Birmingham schools, Bloomfield schools, Wald Lake schools, and then in Colorado Springs in, in very, very diverse and in, in each of their own ways were very diverse school districts. I think that was very attractive to them uh, to understand that I was able to kind of navigate different worlds uh, and, and help bring people together, which was some of um, what, what Farmington is looking for is really kind of healing and, ha and having the community come together. So I think those two factors, that long-term commitment and then my past experience with, uh, with um, diverse school districts was, was made me a pretty uh, attractive candidate. Well, all those factors certainly set the stage for positive impact um, for the children and families in the schools as you were speaking. And we also know from research that that kind of profile, when you have people in place that can not only develop, but um, share a vision and cultivate it with the folks that are in that community allows things to not only start to happen, but to get fully seated and expressed in a, a way that's very successful. So with that in mind, you're, you're closing on closing in on the end of the first year already, hard to believe. Yes. Uh, when you think about what you had in mind as you began um, and are seated now here in early April, what are the things that you're most proud of? You know, I, I, I am very validated by the fact that the, the vision of the superintendent that I wanted to be, that I envisioned being, I've been able to live into that. And what I mean by that is I, I have taken from, from the wonderful um, mentors that I've had, uh, including the two of you on this podcast and many others, I've, I've, I've taken different attributes of, of the positive aspects of leadership and tried to live into those. I've been incredibly visible and at pretty much every event, I, I was at a music concert the other night and, uh, and the director shared, you know, here, our superintendent is here, Dr. Ogato, he wins the award for attending the most uh, music concerts in history or, or something like that. And so I, I've been able to be in schools in every classroom and supporting children and supporting families and, and really showing my commitment to everyone in the organization. And so it's, it's been very, very validating to, uh, to be able to do that. I think living so close to the district, in the district, allows me the opportunity to do that, as well as the stage in my life right now. I have three grown children. And so we're, we're almost empty nesters, but I have the flexibility to do that. So, you know, I think uh, eight, nine months in, it's, it's, it's very rewarding to be able to be the type of leader, the hands-on leader, and get to know as many people personally, not only in the schools, but in the community as well. Um, I had the unique opportunity to give my first State of the Cities speech not too long ago with, uh, you know, over 100 uh, community members in the room. And as I looked around the room, I, I knew almost every individual and organization because of the ability to to meet in July and August and September with uh, folks around the community. So um, so it's I, I think in a very short time, we've really been able to establish some pretty uh, solid relationships both in the community, um, in the schools and in the community abroad. And so that's very satisfying for me. Well, and I can see why it would feel that way. And uh, also that's probably something that is feeling very much the same with the community because you're very much engaged and very much engaged, not just only what's happening in the schools, but with the community at large. 
sets the stage nicely for more success ahead. Um, as you sit at this moment, there's probably a few things that might have come as a surprise. There typically are. When we take on something, even if we know it well, there's something that appears out of left field. All of a sudden, we have to hold up our, our catcher's mitt and say, OK, got this one. What might have been some of the surprises that have made their way to your, your um, baseball glove this year? <laughs> well, you know, I've been, I've been asked this question before. and. Um, I want to answer it in two ways. So the first first way is I'm actually haven't been surprised by anything procedurally, if you will, managerially. And, and I attribute that to the duration of my time as a deputy superintendent. So I was the deputy superintendent in Wild Lake for 10 years and essentially ran the day-to-day -day operations of the entire district. And so you see sometimes people who aspire to the superintendency um, a little too quickly than, than maybe they're ready to do so. And the fit may not be there, the, uh, the, the, the experience may not be there, and they end up running into some challenges. You don't know what you don't know until you're in a job. And, I, and so I think 10 years is a long time as a deputy superintendent. And so, you know, leading others, implementing systems, collaborating with a board, with the community, because I had so much experience as a deputy superintendent, that aspect of the job has been a, made, made for a very smooth transition. And obviously that, that the learning curve wasn't as steep for me as it may have been for, for other individuals. So in the first way, I haven't been surprised. The second way I'll answer that question though is, I, I am surprised at how difficult it's been for me to find a balance between offering suggestions at my own cabinet or leadership team about systems or models or practices that might work without them becoming an edict from the superintendent, if you will. Yes. And so because I have so much experience and, and as deputy, I, I, I worked with so many different areas uh, from master scheduling to strategic planning to fill in the blank. I have a lot of knowledge and, and expertise that, that I want to offer to people but it's, it's, it's been very tricky, kind of this art of leadership of trying to be, listen more and be silent and not introduce my ideas uh, and allow people to develop their own ideas. So I'm, I'm, that's, I guess that would be the most surprising aspect of the job is how, how to balance that, how to contribute when people are asking for my ideas and help, but, but I, I need them to develop as well in the same way that I was given the opportunity to develop as a deputy. So if, if, if that makes sense, that's, that's probably been my biggest challenge. It, it makes great sense. And I think back about my own experience as a deputy superintendent and superintendent, and it mirrored some of the things you just said. And the notion of distributing leadership um, between and among others is indeed an art um, all to itself, which leads me to the next question. Um, how do you as a superintendent effectively support that distributed leadership, particularly when you think about principal and teacher leadership and people leading from the middle of the organization? So it's not just a central office idea that we have to do, um, but you're building again, shared mission, vision and developing systems together. How does the superintendent strike that balance and, and make it happen? That's a wonderful question. And, and ironically, in my very first leadership team meeting, we have a monthly leadership team meeting with all 60 of our leaders, principals, assistant principals, uh, directors, supervisors, uh, both instructional and non-instructional. My very first presentation that I gave was on 
distributive leadership. And I talked to them about the theories, and this actually comes from the course that, that I teach at, at OU in our principal prep program. And it's the theoretical leadership, the theories and techniques of leadership, but the theoretical framework behind distributive leadership. And I shared a clip uh, from Dr. Alma Harris, who talks about the difference between delegation and, and distributive leadership. And really the idea, really at, the, at the, the nexus of distributive leadership is starts with a belief in other people and a belief that other people have something to contribute and that your status, whether you're a teacher, a paraprofessional, a secretary, an assistant principal, that that's, that's irrelevant to leaderful schools, if you will, that you can distribute leadership by tapping into the expertise and the interest of people and then supporting them. So that was a wonderful way for me to open this school year of teaching this idea of distributive leadership. So back to the question of how, how does the superintendent do that? I, I think you do that by modeling that distributive leadership when you have committee work, when we have strategic planning work, that you not only proactively seek out individuals, both uh, from the teacher ranks, from your uh, uh, parental uh, ranks and invite them into it, but then you share this model with them of what distributive leadership really could mean. And I think that as people get into, for example, we have, we have, we're very, very proud of our strategic planning work. As you get into strategic planning work or, or other committee work where you as a parent or you as a teacher or as a secretary can contribute in a meaningful way where your ideas are valued and they turn into action steps or action plans, then you're more committed organizationally. So, you know, we, we, I, I can't, I inherited a, a wonderful cabinet and Dr. Kelly Coffin helps lead our strategic planning effort, but we're very proud of the fact that we have five overarching goals, eight subcommittees, and over 100 community members, including uh, teachers and parents and, and, and paras and custodians and secretaries who are all on these committees who are working towards our vision and our profile of a learner in Farmington Public Schools. So we're very proud of that work. I can see why, and and well, the whole community should be because they are very much invested in the success of the district, and the district has done a lot historically to engage, which you certainly are amplifying as you step in in your new role. I'm I'm pausing for a moment, um, full stop, new paragraph, because despite the fact that you came in very well prepared, you know the community and you've engaged the community and they with you, the strategic plan is in place. Every once in a while, there might be a time in the middle of the night when you wake up and say, oh my goodness, or something comes in that you say, oh, how, how about this? It's different than a surprise. Um, it's something that you, you work on and you're kind of grinding away on. Are there any issues that are causing you to wake up in the middle of the night or are you sleeping pretty soundly these days? Or does it depend? Uh, well, I, I, you know, after almost, I think over 20 years as an administrator, we all develop kind of a thick skin and, and it's not that we're desensitized to issues, but, um, but we, we don't personalize them as, as much. So over the years, I've gotten better at not taking things so personally, um, but I am human. And so uh, one of the challenges and the things that keeps, keeps me up at night is, is the whole dynamic of social media in our lives and the, the amount of falsehoods and vitriol that can happen very quickly on social media. The, the, the judgment uh, out in the community over a school issue without the context 
and and that's not unique to the superintendency, but um, but it is obviously people are looking to me to address it. Our board is looking to me to address it, and so you know when things are taken out of context and and it starts to gain uh, some some traction on social media, the damage control is something that that you really have to work hard um, to get out ahead of. And so there there are things that concern me. I I respect so much what our current Board of Education has tried to do. We've worked very hard together to form a relationship and the eight of us to show a model of decorum and positivity in our board moving forward. The, uh, the board has had some bumpy years in the, in the past few years, and they really want to show um, uh, you know, a, a good, good organized front and a good face forward. And it's, it's difficult when things on social media um, are accusatory towards them or, uh, or believe that they have some nefarious um, you know, objective, particularly when it comes to, to some of our diversity, equity, and, and inclusion work. There have been some, some unfair uh, accusations cast at them and at me and others. And so that dynamic keeps me up a little bit about just keeping them, um, helping to, to remind them that, that, that they're doing the right things for the right reasons, that they're good people who are showing a vision, who care for all children and, uh, and just kind of monitoring those relationships. And um, I, don't, I don't know that I have the answer, but, but there needs to be more dialogue uh, rather than just posting in our society in general. And so that, that's a unique challenge for kind of modern administrators in general, but certainly for a superintendent. You know, Chris, you might, not, you, you might not have the answer, but you certainly have the attitude uh, uh, in terms of Appreciate how to do that. it. As I listened to the response to that last series of questions that Sue posed, uh, I, there's an article waiting to be written there about reflections of a uh, first-year superintendent that is, uh, <laughs> is very good. You might want to think about that. The series change subjects a little bit. The, the, the theme of this series of podcasts has been reimagining and resetting education after the pandemic. And you know, a lot of folks feel like many of our flaws were revealed during the past two years that were perhaps swept under the rug before. And now we have to deal with them. And I think superintendents like you are finding how hard it is to do that. So to do that. So from your perspective, what are some of the issues that have been revealed in recent years and how is the, how's the Farmington Public School District uh, trying to uh, deal with those? Well, I think one of the most immediate issues for, for not just Farmington, but all school districts was the inequity with, uh, with online access and learning. And many of us immediately looking, depending on our, our poverty rates and, and, and some of the demographics in our community, knew that if we were going to have to pivot to an online world, that we needed to invest uh, more heavily in technology. Unfortunately, we had some funding that assisted with things like hotspots for those families who couldn't afford internet, as well as Chromebooks, multiple Chromebooks for, for students in the schools. And so, you know, th those are some of the, you know, most immediate challenges that we had. The other thing uh, that, that made it very challenging, and I'll go back a little bit to the time when we were in, in full online mode, both at in Farmington, then my, my last year in, in Wild Lake, is the disproportionate, disproportionate negative impact on our youngest learners, our K-1-2 learners, especially in literacy. It was very, very challenging to teach, uh, to teach reading uh, on, 
on, um, you know, on in an online setting, as well as for our special education students, some of them, especially those in our self-contained classrooms, our cognitively impaired students or autistic uh, spectrum disorder students, they were, it was, it was very challenging for us to provide the proper level of service. And then our EL population, we have a, a huge uh, English language learner population and to be able to, you know, have enough translators and to work with families to navigate that, that was very, very challenging. And so in Wild Lake, actually, after the first uh, marking period, noticing the significant discrepancies, we ended up bringing those populations back to school in person with social distancing first and kept everybody else online. And then obviously in all districts, we eventually moved back to that model. So I think, uh, you know, some of the, the, the huge challenges were both economic as well as access, if you will, access to curriculum, access to learning for certain groups uh, disproportionately over other groups. Those are some of the main challenges that we had. So now that you're back and have been for a while, uh, in what ways has the Farmington Public School System reimagined and rethought of how it does business considering those issues you just mentioned? Mm -hmm. Well, the, the irony of uh, living through this pandemic is that we've all gotten better at doing what we're doing right now. We're, uh, we're on a podcast. We're all familiar with Zoom and WebEx and, and, uh, and the ability to teach in a hybrid fashion, to engage students. Our teachers have become, become much more proficient on breakout groups online. And, um, you know, back, what it was, uh, 10, 15 years ago, we, you know, it was, we called it the flipped classroom where you posted uh, information online before and had students do uh, activities before and they came to class. So there, there have been significant, in my mind, instructional um, gains in terms of the skill set, the knowledge of our teachers, our administrators to monitor online classes. Farmington Public Schools specifically uh, has maintained a remote and virtual program, K-12, and we intend to continue that. So one of the things is that we didn't just do this for COVID. We did this to be a progressive district with the support of our board. And going back to the superintendent role, you can't do this without a supportive board. And so we have a board who is actually absolutely committed to innovation. And as we've been able to describe our vision for what we call our RVP, our remote and virtual program, it includes flexibility of things like hybrid classes in the future, rethinking how we do high school, flex schedules, hybrid schedules. Uh, you know, I teach at the university level hybrid classes that work out just fine. And so uh, those are the kind of things that we're really excited about looking, looking towards. So we're maintaining our K-12 virtual program as well as a remote program, uh, one of them being live synchronous daily schedule and then asynchronous kind of learn at your own pace for those learners in those subjects where they may be able to, uh, to pursue that on their own. Uh, many of our students, especially at the secondary level, when given the option, they may choose to do an asynchronous class for say a history class where they can read and they can do some analysis and submit some information, or maybe even an English class where they can analyze the novel. But for math, for some of the hard sciences, the math and science, they would prefer to have a synchronous model. And there's no reason that we can't rethink education. And now we have the skill set, we have the ability, we have the infrastructure with the Chromebooks and the technology that we can really start to reimagine this. 
And that's exactly what our strategic plan in Farmington is doing, is rethinking that. One of our subcommittees is specifically about innovation in education. We have a board goal for innovation in education, and we have actually a board subcommittee that is exploring pupil accounting flexibility. We met with state officials uh, just a couple of weeks ago on how we might be able to provide flexibility to get us away from um, the 1098 uh, hours that we all had to fit uh, the box in. So we're very excited about those possibilities. And, um, you know, we're, we're better uh, instructionally, I think, having gone through the pandemic. We have a, a broader skill set, a deeper skill set. That's really refreshing to hear you say that because, of, you know, for years back since when Sue and I were superintendents, you know, often the question would come up of what sense does it make for a 17-year-old to have to have his school day pretty much look like a six-year-old's. Uh, you know, right. All the different things that they can be doing, and yet that's the way we've always done it. It's, uh, uh, it's from, from buses to baseball is what we used to call it. You know, the bus schedule yeah. and the sports, there are so many convenient obstacles for why we can't. But asking how can we, that you reframe the question. Yeah, absolutely. Well, another question that we've been asking each of our uh, guests is to comment on the what has been a dramatic uh, loss of talent of administrators, mm -hmm. superintendents, principals, and teachers uh, choosing during the pandemic to pursue retirement sooner than they would have otherwise, leaving pretty big holes. So what do you think needs to be done to encourage more young people to consider education as a career and to encourage more teachers to consider uh, formal leadership as a career? I, uh, that's, that's an excellent question. I, I am concerned about the future of, of education in general. I, I think to my own children, um, the three of them, none of them chose to go into education, uh, but I think about a young person going through four years of education now and the rising tuition costs at a, you know six figures of tuition just at a public university to then go through the, the challenges of student teaching and to come in making the salaries that we have without, um, you know, with no longer the, the social compact that we used to have of, of appreciating a pension and, and some of the other aspects I, and, and the increased scrutiny on public education. I worry about that. I think that some of the efforts that we've heard from a governmental aspect on loan forgiveness could be a huge incentive in young people being able to go into the public professions that uh, we've heard that both uh, from a state level as well as, as a regional level when we get them in retention is a huge piece as well and you know if you look at the research on on incentives and merit pay salary alone doesn't validate people it's right. recognition it's acknowledgement it's involvement in their organization and being able to contribute in a meaningful way. It goes back to your idea of leaderful schools. And so, you know, actually I've, I'm doing a series right now of, of staff coffees. So we did, I'll digress for a moment, but uh, we did some formal staff coffees. We did about three of them in the first semester and three of them in the second semester, as well as community coffees to try to get to meet um, as many people as we could. I noticed in the second semester here that at my first staff coffee, I only had about six or seven people. So I leaned over to, uh, to Diane Bauman, who you know, our, our, uh, our director of school community relations. And I said, Diane, I said, let's go to them. 
let's meet, let's schedule another 17 school coffees at every single school and every single building, maintenance, transportation, every single school, so we can meet with teachers face-to-face -face and secretaries and paras, and we can learn about their experience. And so I have so enjoyed this, th this opportunity. I do them almost daily. Now we're trying to get them all in before the end of the year. But sitting down face-to-face -face with people and asking them about your experience. And I ask the same question. I ask a series of questions. But the same question to them is, why would anyone want to work in Farmington Public Schools? And why would you want to stay here? And with our, from that feedback, we're going back to our Assistant Superintendent of Talent Development, formerly HR, to talk about recruitment and re retainment. And many of the things that they're saying is, flexibility and schedule, um, you know, choice in, in, in subcommittee work, um, professionalism in, 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 in professional judgment in professional learning communities and aspects along those lines, including a competitive salary and trying to have fringe benefits and, and, and low quality insurance. You know, I, I go back to this, this notion that once upon a time, there used to be this social compact that for individuals who went into a public sphere, whether it were police or fire or public education, the community at large knew that there was going to be kind of a ceiling on your earnings. But in exchange, there was a viable pension at the end of your career, as well as quality health insurance for your family. And you could have a nice middle, middle class or upper middle class life. And once upon a time, society was fine with that. And then something changed with the idea of this, this envy of pensions or, you know, this change in, in, in the criticism of teachers uh, and, and, and this, this notion of, of, of greed and entitlement. And so I don't know how or why that changed necessarily, but I think we need to do our best to, to re-change re, re that narrative to yeah. promote to young people that it's, it's, it's a wonderful profession, a wonderful career. And then to, to answer your second part of the question just very quickly, once you get teacher leaders, it's, it's encouraging them to look at uh, administrative leadership because we need good people in every single position uh, along the chain. I think it, you've, what you've really said is that it's, it's a systemic issue. It's not, there's no quick fix. And so the attitudes and systems that have emerged in the last few years have really been detrimental. Sue, before we wrap it up, you wanna take the last question because I think it's an important one to conclude with today. Absolutely. And it's one that we typically ask Chris uh, when we're talking with folks e either sitting in the superintendent's chair or in other roles because of the change of leadership that's happening just naturally or by attrition for a variety of reasons, as you just suggested. Um, there are new and newer superintendents. And I'm curious, as you're sitting almost at the end of your first year, what advice you would have for that next generation of superintendents who are going to be stepping into the role that you now occupy um, over the next year or so? What, what would you advise them over a cup of coffee? Uh, absolutely. So the first, uh, the first piece of advice I would give them is experience central office before you jump into a superintendency. Mm -hmm. It's not that you can't come from say a building level leadership and go to a superintendency, but the value you will gain from being in central office, from being able to work shoulder to shoulder with a board of education, to have kind of a 
a broader 10,000 or 50,000 foot view to make connections with community members, you will better understand the position before you, you assume the position. The second thing that I would say, and this is the same thing that I, that I advise to uh, my students in, in my principal prep program at OU, is research the districts that you think match your skill set. I ask the question often, you know, how does your skill set and experience align with what you know about the district that you're applying to? Yeah. And so you fit is so very important. And as as you both know, fit with your board is incredibly important. It's 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 it makes or breaks the relationship. And so the more that they can research the philosophy of the district, the individual um perspectives of the board members to watch when I, for example, when I applied for, before I applied for Farmington, I watched hours and hours of board meetings. I think I went back uh, about a year and watched the dynamics of the Board of Education to understand who the people are, where their hearts were, where their minds were. So there's a lot of research that would go into it. And I would just recommend that pick a district that you think that uh, you can make a meaningful contribution to. Um, just don't uh, run quickly to the role. You know, when I was deputy superintendent, I, I for 10 years is a long time. And, you know, I, I remember telling my superintendent, I don't need to drive an hour or an hour and a half to say I'm a superintendent. You know, I'm impacting the lives of 15,000 students every day in my role here. We can all be leaders. And so it's not about the title or the role. It's about trying to influence the lives of children. And if you have a good fit, it can be a beautiful thing. And uh, and I feel that's what I have in Farmington. I hope I have it for a long time. Very wise advice. And I think the community hopes that you have it for a very long time as well. As we wrap up this wonderful conversation, Chris, is there anything that we haven't talked about you wish that we had? Uh, any kind of final words of wisdom? Well, the, the only thing I'll say is I didn't know if this was a, a an audio podcast or a video podcast. So I actually am conducting this from my home office. And for those of you who can see on the screen, I have behind me um, some diplomas. And I wanted to just very quickly tell us a, a story about that. Um, my wife and I are both first-generation college students. Uh, our parents were wonderful blue-collar workers, and uh, but didn't have the opportunity to go to, to go to college. So many people, when you get a diploma, you see people who have their diplomas that are in the, hung in their offices. When we moved into our home, we took our dining room and made it into this office. So around all four walls here, we have diplomas of not only our diplomas, but then our children's diplomas as they've gone through. So ever since they were little little kids, in order to walk to the kitchen to get a bowl of cereal or a glass of juice, they had to come through this, this office. And in as little as one generation, we changed the narrative from you know poverty to opportunity and perspective about not just university pursuits, but post-secondary pursuits. And so I, I, public education changed our lives and changed the trajectory of our children's lives. And that's why I think it's so important for people to go into this field as teachers, as leaders, as superintendents. And so, so I wanted to share that, that story um, just to highlight the power, I guess, in my mind, in my heart of public education. That's more than a metaphor. It's a wonderful, wonderful image you've created. And uh, uh, 
And I think even though we're not doing it by a video, I think our listeners can visualize exactly what you're talking about. So, so Chris Delgado, thank you very, very much. Uh, it's been an excellent interview. Uh, it will be posted soon. And so everybody will be able to, uh, to uh, have the pleasure of hearing what you had to say. Uh, if people want more information about you, I'm sure that they can contact you through your uh, district email. And uh, so you may look forward to hearing that. To our listeners, thank you for being part of this installment of Podcast for Leaderful Schools. As always, we're almost live from Oakland University in Rochester, Michigan.